Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. College football is flaming out, but the Electoral College is heating up. It's election shock therapy. Hey, guys. Happy winter. Yeah. So you're um, just excited about college football because OSU is now got a chance of getting into the playoffs because of a rule all, change. It's all political, man. It's not even. Oh, on the it field. is. Oh, uh, it is. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me on this <laughs> Zoom call are Andy Bramson and Nat Kukum. And yep, my uh, Ohio State Buckeyes, sitting at a measly five and zero, are going to play for the Big Ten championship instead of the six and one Indiana Hoosiers, uh, who I believe are supported by uh, Dr. Kukum, um, because uh, they won a head-to-head matchup, and because the Big Ten waived the rule that you have to play at least six games to qualify for the Big Ten championship. What a nightmare of a season this is, guys! Oh, it is. It is. Yep. Well, we're not here to talk college football much as I would really like to. Uh, we're going to talk about the ongoing saga of the election that just won't die. Um, and I guess uh, I could be referring to 2016 at this point, but I'm actually referring to 2020. Um, and so we're going to talk about the, the latest events in the, in the post-electoral saga, um, including just recently the meeting of the electoral college, uh, which voted, um, uh, to award 306 electoral college votes, uh, to Joe Biden, thereby making him the president elect. And gentlemen, what is, uh, what's it going to take for, uh, this whole thing to be definitively settled? January 20th. (laughs) so the the moment that biden puts his hand on a bible um and takes the oath of office that's that is it settled then no not really Uh, (laughs) i mean mean, not with not with i think hardcore trump supporters who will still probably be talking about how he was robbed yeah i mean it's it's gonna be the parallel but worse of what we saw in 16 right of of you know people saying like well trump's not a legitimate president trump's not my president um and sort of refusing to accept it and then we're going to find every way to sort of throw him out of office right so it, it's like that um but just on the right this time so yeah worse, so. with with the rank and file right i think what's going to be more interesting and, and less clear to me which way it goes is what do the members of congress do i mean they're going to oppose biden obviously on a lot of things sure. um as they did obama and as the democrats did with with trump but but are they going to go that crazy right or are they going to say you know throw a few sops to the base occasionally but for the most part you know not do anything silly like trying to continually impeach or something right we'll see well we've already seen where some of them are willing to go just in the last week or so yeah matt you want to give us a rundown of what the more recent uh twists and turns in the post-election electoral saga have looked like Okay, so I'll give you the highlights, and then we can circle back and dive into particular items if you guys want. I'm not sure we should call them highlights, but yes. Lowlights? <laughs> yeah, they're all lowlights. Um, 
Yeah, we need to find a better term for that. Okay. Anyway, <laughs> um, so so this was over a week ago. So this is a week from this past Monday. So the previous Monday, um, I, I forgot if we mentioned this on the last podcast. There was sort of a last last ditch lawsuit to um, that was seeking the relief of overturning the entire election in the state of Pennsylvania um, for determining the electors from the state of Pennsylvania for the Electoral College. Um, and Ted Cruz basically says he'll argue the case before the Supreme Court. Um, but he knows, um, along with everyone else who knows anything about law, knows that the court was never going to take that case. And indeed, in a one-sentence order, possibly one of the shortest orders of such import that ever existed, the court denies relief and tosses the case. Um, then um, we have the ongoing saga of the Texas Attorney General, who is also, or let's just say, who is in a heap of legal trouble himself, um, sues Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and Michigan, and Georgia. Um, so the state of Texas sues these four other states, um, which means that they get to bring the case directly before the Supreme Court, which has original jurisdiction in cases between states. And basically, the Texas says that these four states didn't conduct their own elections properly according to their own election laws, which somehow brings harm to Texas. Um, SCOTUS rejects this case as well. As a, um, as a fantasy nerd, can I interject here? This case is, all, is the one known as the Kraken, correct? The Kraken, yes. Unleash um, the Kraken. Um, yep. Yes. Um, SCOTUS proceeded to swat down the Kraken in very short order, um, but this was not before 17 Republican state attorneys general and 106 Republican House members signed on, so to speak, in support of the lawsuit, yep. um, which is perhaps the more astonishing thing. Yeah. Um, that there's that much, you know, sort of support. But now I think most of these people knew the suit wasn't going to go anywhere, but right. it was certainly allowed them to score political points. And um, you know, you know, pass this particular loyalty test. Um, so that was um, that was early. Um, so I, I, I need to I need to push here just for a second. So I um, are are we are, are you are we saying that seventeen Republican attorney generals and one hundred and six members of Congress signed on to a suit they knew was scurrilous? Uh, just to curry favor with the outgoing president? Yeah. Um, so they didn't sort of yeah. join technically in the lawsuit. So we'll be clear about that. But they, right. they basically um, all signed on to, I think it was probably like an amicus brief, which basically yeah. say, hey, we support, you know, the Texas lawsuit. Um, so it's the equivalent of like a giant press release, basically. Um, and yeah, it's, yeah. It's um, it's meat to the to the base. It's currying favor with Trump. It, um, you know, it's all with the idea that well, Trump is going to continue to dominate, and Trumpism is going to continue to dominate American politics. And this is how we sort of stay on board that train. Um, that's there's really variations striking. of that logic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, yeah, that's far more striking than if those if if the seventeen attorneys general thought that they had the case had merit. Yeah. Right. right. And yeah. Right. And as someone else pointed out, um, you know, these attorneys general, I mean, this is not like the U.S. attorney general. Right. These are state attorneys general are often their elected offices. Yep. And these are sort of young, upcoming lawyer politicians who are very ambitious and are setting their sights on higher office like lieutenant governor, governor, um, senator, whatever. And this is a way to sort of burnish their credentials um, with with the base. So, so the first thing that they have to do is they have to go find um, open positions potential or to primary someone who um, is in the Republican Party. And this gives them sort of ammunition to be able to do that. 
Um, so, so yeah, that's, that's the more, yeah, this, the case was crazy. Um, but the fact that so many people sort of tethered themselves to the Kraken is what's even more remarkable. So, yeah. The phrase tethering yourself to the Kraken usually ends poorly. Let's just, <laughs> yeah, that's no. not usually a good strategy. I mean, it's, it is interesting to me. Like, you know, I think I've mentioned this on this, um, podcast before, but like, I just taught David Mayhew's, you know, electoral connection again, this fall where he talks about, you know, members of Congress as single-minded seekers of re-election. And I think you see that kind of logic here of what's going to play well with the base. Um, they might be very angry at me if I don't do this. And the people that will be angry with me for doing this, that'll probably fade by the time I need it to fade, right? And so it is a pretty cynical calculation. I think it's really bad for our politics, but it is probably not wrong um, in terms of like their electoral prospects for most of these people, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So let's let, let me let me play this forward just for a second, and I'm I propose a hypothetical here. Um, let's say some member of Congress within the first couple of weeks of the of the new session files um, articles of impeachment against Joe Biden for wrongfully taking office. Um, how many members? <laughs> how many Republicans in in the House sign on to articles of impeachment? I don't know. I mean, it's yeah, that's a good question. Like what? That, more yeah. than a few. Yeah, more than a few, probably, but but not 106, I would guess. I don't know. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, I mean, obviously, you know, signing on impeachment is a bigger deal. I mean, it depends on what you mean by signing on impeachment. I mean, it, it won't go through the House anyway, no. and the House is where the process begins. So in some ways, it's the same sort of deal. Like, well, I know the Supreme Court is going to toss this case. And I'm right. sure a lot of some of the 106 like know that and think that's probably the right move, like legally, right? Because they yep. think it's ridiculous. Um, but this allows them to score political points without you know suffering any consequences from it, right? Because they know the Supreme Court will will sort of swat down the Kraken for them, and meanwhile they can score points off of you know playing along with the Kraken, right? It's the same thing here. Like Pelosi's not going to allow impeachment to to move forward, and right. so but they right. could score some political points um, by you know basically you know, all, you know, joining in a resolution that calls for impeachment, knowing that it won't even get a majority, right? Yeah. So, yeah, yeah I, I would say, I wouldn't be surprised if there's a hundred. Wow. So, one, one more one more cracking question from me. Uh, all three Trump-appointed Supreme Court justices uh, voted to smack down the Kraken. Uh, and boy, boy, I love this more and more, the more I get to say it. Um, but... <laughs> Uh, two other conservative justices um, said that they were willing to hear the case, uh, Alito and um, Thomas. Uh, Thomas. Did, do we have any sense of what their what their reasoning was for why they were the two? It, it was a seven two decision. Why they were the two that were willing to hear the case? Um, so it gets really complicated in the in into the weeds. Um, so, and I would recommend, you know, if, if anyone wants to find some resources on this, email the podcast. I can send you resources. <laughs> uh, basically, they issued a um, sort of a concurrence. So, uh, which, I mean, this whole thing was not, there was not a majority opinion in this case. This was just an order, right? Mm -hmm. So there's no opinion. Right. This isn't used for the purpose of setting precedent, which is an order, right? And then Alito and Thomas sort of, append a concurrence, if you will, which is not technically an opinion either, just sort of right. stating that, um, and basically they stated something along the lines of, 
because there was a previous case from, I forgot if it was earlier this year or previously, in which basically there was a question, there was basically two states that are in a lawsuit against each other. And they said that the Supreme Court basically must hear these sorts of cases in which the Supreme Court does have original jurisdiction. So the Constitution states that the Supreme Court shall have original jurisdiction, shall be sort of the initial trial court in cases in which one state is suing another. Right. right. And Alito and Thomas sort of took that line in, in a completely different unrelated case and said that this is something that the Supreme Court needs to do. And basically, they're just saying, like, well, this is another case of original jurisdiction. And so we think the Supreme Court basically should take this up. Now, I think there's arguments you can make against that just because it is original jurisdiction doesn't mean that the court is obligated to take the case because there's other questions of of ripeness and of mootness and of standing. Right. So I don't think right. there's obligation, but they were basically being consistent with a completely different sort of tack that they had taken earlier. And so they basically said, we think the Supreme Court should take this case. Yeah. But they also said in the in basically their concurrence that um, but we would not grant the relief that was sought. Mm. And we do not speak to um, any of the other merits or claims that are made in this case. So basically, if they got their way, they would have taken it and then they would have swapped out the Kraken. So so yeah. don't read this as, um, you know, Alito and Thomas, you know, were interested in taking the case that they, they could give Trump an advantage. Like, no, that was not at all what was going on. So, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's actually kind of reassuring in some ways. Okay. Yeah. No, my, my read of that, I agree with Matt. I mean, my read is it's there were nine justices who said this is kind of nonsense, right? And it's just they they differed on at what level you you make that issue that declaration. Some of them are saying like it's nonsense even to consider this coming before us, and two of them are saying it could come before us, but we see no merits, basically. Well, right. And the original order didn't even state anything about we would not grant relief. It just sort of dismissed it as like Texas yeah. doesn't have standing here, right? Yeah. So the so the the order didn't speak to the merits. Interestingly, this concurrence was the only place in which yeah. the court actually did speak to the merits. Yeah. And so really Alito and Thomas went further than the rest of the justices and yep. yep. saying we would not grant the relief, right? So in fact, that was a stronger sort of sort of yeah. statement against and more of a revelation of what these two justices thought yeah. about the merits, which is that there are no merits, right? And that that it's that's basically a frivolous case. Right. We're not just denying it on its technicality. Yeah. 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 All right. So there is the uh the smoking husk of the Kraken. Um, and, uh, but that isn't the end of the craziness that's happened this past week. Matt, keep, lead us forward. Okay. So on Wednesday, so this is a week ago, um, a prominent sort of evangelical sort of public intellectual type, um, by the name of Eric Metaxas gives a, um, a quite sincere, so I think he believed everything he said, but truly unhinged interview with, um, the, right-wing um, sort of young upstart, um, Charlie Kirk. Um, yeah. So that was Wednesday. We could circle back and talk about that. Um, and this was sort of a preview of what we saw on Saturday. There was a massive rally in Washington, D.C. called the Jericho March, um, featuring, among others, uh, all in the same space, Alex Jones, Eric Metaxas, Michael Flynn, the Catholic Archbishop Carlo Maria uh, Vigano, I'm probably botching his name, the former Vatican ambassador to the U.S., and the uh, Stop the Steal organization. Um, and it was a truly so crazy like, event. It's kind of like the Avengers, right? I mean, you've got S.H.I.E.L.D., plus you've got uh, uh, Captain America, um, 
No, okay, never mind. Yeah, Go ahead. Kind of, um, maybe an unholy alliance might be the better way. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, no, you got a, a Catholic archbishop there, man. I don't know how unholy you're going to get. Uh, <laughs> now we'll, we'll we'll talk about um, um, the the archbishop. Um, okay. Anyway, right, so and violence broke out Saturday night. Um, so it was it was crazy. We can circle back to that as well. Um, so turning away from you know, so on Monday, um, the electors of the Electoral College met in their respective state capitals and a majority voted to um, you know, basically cast their ballots for Biden in what is the true presidential election. Right? Um, and at this point, the White House issues basically a statement that the Trump campaign would continue fighting, um, although no specifics were given. Um, we know that um, the final step in this process is that there is a joint session of the new Congress, which meets on January 6th to count the votes and the electoral votes, that is, and to declare the results. Um, and this is the absolute final point at which the election can be contested. Um, there might be some objections and some debate there, but that Hail Mary will um, will not result in a touchdown. What would, what would that look like? So if the Trump administration really wanted to push that joint session of Congress that counts electoral votes, um, what would it look, would, would they actually just try to get the joint session to pass a resolution to not count the votes? What's sure. the process? Okay, so there's a law, it's, I don't know what part of the US code it is um, off the top of my head, but there basically there's a law that states, you know, that the electors in the electoral college um, you know, once they cast their votes, these votes are transmitted to the Congress. The new Congress, after basically the first thing that it does after it's sworn in on January 5th is on January 6th, and January 6th is set down as at 1 p.m. is <laughs> set down in the law as the time in which a joint session of the House and the Senate convene um, to receive and to count the votes from the states. Um, and it's during this mm -hmm. process when each state's vote is sort of, you know, counted, um, that a member of the House and a member of the Senate, it takes a member of the House and the Senate, one each, um, can basically issue an objection in writing, and there's some other weird things going on there, um, which we won't get into, issue an objection in writing um, to the slate of electors from state. Um, and if at this point, if you have an objection in writing from one senator, one member of Congress, possibly from the same state, although the law is vague on that, um, then the Congress goes into a two-hour deliberation within each respective chamber. So they split into their own respective chambers and have a two-hour debate. That is a hard two-hour limit in which each side basically can present their case. And then after that, the and then each and basic basically then each chamber would have to sustain uh, to would have to sustain the objection um, in which case that state's electors are sort of are tossed out or reallocated depending on how things go yeah. um and then eventually you know the the two chambers come back together and vote to affirm the final slate um but of course this isn't going to happen because democrats control the House, and there's already enough Republicans, it looks like, in the Senate who will not go along with this scheme. We know Mitch McConnell congratulated President Biden, warned against Republican senators joining in an objection with a House member on January 6th. Um, and so this this is not going to fly anywhere. And we could delve into more of the legal weeds on that if you want, but yeah. this is sort of the last-ditch effort that the Trump campaign is going to be gesturing at as a possibility 
but it's it's just not going to fly. Now, I understand McConnell has incredible control over his caucus in the Senate. And yes, Democrats hold control of the House. But couldn't you imagine someone like a Ted Cruz who has aspirations beyond the Senate convening with some other Texas Republican from, from the House and at least making this show of having this two-hour debate on both sides? Oh, yeah, that's sure. almost certain to happen, right? Yeah, I think there will be more than one Republican in the Senate, um, and certainly there will be multiple Republicans in the House that will do this. Um, and yeah, and they know, um, even people like Ted, Ted Cruz, this is this basically the same sort of stuff that he pulled previously, is he knows that he can score political points um, because he knows that ultimately the adults in the room will, will actually solve the problem for him. And that frees him up to score political points to get all the benefits without any of the real consequences. So right. it's it's absolutely shameless, um, yeah. but that's that's what's going to happen. And I think I want to just comment here. Like I think that's probably right. Unfortunately, um, it, it is. I, I find it difficult to have words to express the depth of foolishness of this, right, and the short sightedness of this, because you're scoring your own personal points at the cost of like opening this door for this to happen again. Right. And I, I think what's interesting about this situation, right. Is, I mean, it's very clear. We've talked about it a lot on this podcast. Joe Biden won this presidential election. Um, it's not all that close, honestly. Um, and, and so there's no real legitimate objections here. Um, and yet what's interesting is like, what if you were in a situation where you had super majorities by Republicans, right. In both houses in Senate. Right. Um, and enough of them decided like, we want to just grab power. We're going to do it. Right. Um, they could, right? I mean, you could you could get away with this, like from a at least from a you know theoretical standpoint, right? And so you by doing this, you open this door for someone down the road, and it may not be your party, right? Um, to do this exact kind of thing and say, like, we don't like the results of this election. We have the power to not accept it. Ergo, we're not going to. We're just going to ratify a different slate of electors and call it good, right? So I mean, it's it's incredibly foolish and damaging to our democratic norms. Um, but unfortunately, as Matt's already rightly pointed out, that doesn't necessarily mean it won't happen. Yeah. It won't go anywhere, but it, it and this goes, yeah, that's a great point, Andy. And this goes back to something I said earlier this year is that, um, you know, just because you have the constitutional, you're, you're within your constitutional rights to do something and you're still working within the law, right. Doesn't mean that you should, right. Right. Um, or that you, and, and so, you know, our institutions can take, um, are, are very flexible um, and can take a lot of a lot of pressure, right? But yeah. at some point, um, you know, the Constitution and sort of the statutory laws that surround it, you know, that that prescribe these processes that we've been talking about, electoral college and and the joint session of Congress and so on. Like at some point, um, these institutions will no longer be able to. They're, they're no longer sustainable when the political actors involved are perfectly happy to toss out all norms, right? right. Um, and any sort of commitment to the overall stability and cohesiveness of the system. So you have to have, I mean, even if there is intense partisanship um, and, and power politics, I mean, that's always been the case, right? Um, yeah. But, but you still have to have some sort of basic commitment to, to these norms and to these rules and to, to, you know, the system itself. And eventually the, the erosion of those things will eventually produce um, institutions that can no longer, um, no longer, sustain our, our overall system and that's that's what frightens me more than anything about yeah. a political moment we're in 
Yeah, I agree. And, and you know, and President-elect Biden made this point in his speech Monday night after his, you know, his declaration of victory with the Electoral College, right? Four years ago, I presided over this count, right? Yeah, yeah I didn't want Donald Trump to be president, but I did my duty. I was vice president of the United States. That's my job. Um, and I presided over it in a normal, you know, rule-abiding fashion, right? And he's right. He did, right? And that was exactly what he should have done. Um, as vice president, and he did it, right? I mean, Al Gore had to do this in 2000 after the incredibly contentious election. He had to preside over the declaration of his own defeat, right? Um, mm -hmm. You know, Richard Nixon in 1960 chooses not to um, go to the mat and challenge what were probably some actual real election irregularities because this would not be good for the country, right? And we're going to back off and just say, okay, John F. Kennedy won, um, and we're going to accept that. That's better. I mean, so we have to think about like what's good for the what's good for the broader institutions, not just our gain in this moment. And that's what concerns me is increasingly we, we're losing that perspective, I think. Yeah. Can we come back to something? I feel like we skimmed over something. Sure. Um, Matt, what's the Jericho March? <laughs> yeah. Um, oh. I'm, I, I should mention before we dive into this topic, um, we've made no secret about the fact that we are three political scientists who teach at Bethel University, which is a yeah. Christian uh, educational institution. Uh, we're about to embark on uh, a discussion here of the intersection between evangelical Christianity, populism, uh, Trumpism, and uh, perhaps delusionalism. So, you want me to lead us off by singing Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho? Well, I'm I, so I'm familiar with the Battle of Jericho, which is this, which is this inspiring story from the Old Testament, yep. where um, uh, God sends uh, his uh, his people, the Israelites, into uh, the, uh, a land dominated by um, uh, dominated by their opponents, and there is an insurmountable fortress. They march around the fortress uh, for a, for a week, um, blowing on ram's horns, and at the end of the week, uh, um, to show off God's glory, uh, the walls come tumbling down of their own accord, and the Israelites conquer uh, the, uh, the the enemy peoples. Um, what is going on in DC? <laughs> yeah. Um... It was not that there were no walls that <laughs> there were elements down. of that. No, uh, I mean, from, but there were ram's horns, right? There were. There were. Um, so let me <laughs> let me back up a little bit and talk about the Metaxas Please. interview very, very briefly. Um, so Eric Metaxas, um, as I mentioned, he's a very well known sort of evangelical um, sort of public figure, sort of public intellectual. He wrote a very famous biography of Bonhoeffer, which was well received, even though it's got some some issues with it, but. Um, you know, just a, a sort of a, a very generally a very thoughtful, kind sort of Christian public intellectual with serious credibility, right? Um, and sort of moving amongst the sort of the cultural movers and shakers in New York City, right? So lots of connections. But he's sort of over the past several years sort of gone off kind of the deep end. Um, and there's even some questions about mental illness, although that's unsubstantiated. So basically, he gave an interview with this sort of young firebrand who has his own um, sort of radio show. He's called Charlie Kirk. Um, and in the interview, Eric Metaxas, this is astonishing given sort of his general thoughtfulness um, in the past. Um, in the interview, interview, he, interview, he stated Trump won by line, landslide, and he's very sincere in this, that the stealing of the election, so that the stealing of the election cannot be proved, but that it's true, right? He said there's no evidence, but it's still true, so it's, it's a matter of faith. Right. Um, that the stealing of the election from Trump is a thousand times worse than rape and murder. Like you, you have to listen to this. Like this is yeah. this is for real, um, and that anyone who disagrees with this position is in league with the devil and and demonic forces, 
and is comparable to Nazi collaborators. Interestingly, this a statement from a guy who wrote a biography of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Yeah, right. um, he said, Metaxas did, that we need to, quote, fight to the death to the last drop of blood because it's worth it, end quote, to fight for Donald Trump and him remaining president. Um, also, quote, and I quote, people I know and trust well have heard from God that Trump will have a second term. And that, quote, if these people heard from God, then it has to happen because, quote, they have a track record. Metaxas goes on to be the MC of the Jericho March. The Jericho March featured an interesting collection of folks. Um, so there is, and I, I will run through some of the, the low And we use the word interesting in the full Minnesotan sense of the word. Yes. It's um, not a good thing. Yeah. So there's, there is Mike Landy, who is the founder of MyPillow. Um, who basically gets up and rants about uh, apocalyptic visions um, while in the midst of the whole the whole event, there's a split screen of basically um, the, the speaker and songs and hymns and whatever else. And then a split screen on the other side of the split screen is commercials for MyPillow. And various speakers will get up and after they rant about these visions, they will say, and by the way, you can get a discount um, by texting whatever code to you know using this code in my pillow to get the best pillow ever and mike flynn gets up there and says he has the best sleep ever because of um the my pillow pillow that he so bought bizarre. oh yeah i mean it's um it, yeah, it, basically it's, like as the world is like you know everything's falling apart around us but there's no reason you shouldn't get a good night's sleep right like <laughs> anyway um yeah wow. it's it's greed and hucksterism I'm at its so finest um, ask you about this please continue okay all right <laughs> Again, I mean, it, it, you kind of, yeah. So, anyway, um, an American born Israeli man uh, travels to the US and he does this so that he can kick off the march by blowing on a red, white, and blue shofar, which incidentally he calls the Trump shofar. That's how this event begins. Um, there is a Catholic priest. Um, wait, 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 wait. Please do not bury the red, white, and blue shofar. <laughs> I have to ask because. Um, uh, I, I want to be sensitive to um, uh, <laughs> Jewish faith. If someone brought out a red, white, and blue cross, oh, I would sorry. be aghast at the, at the yeah. level of sacrilege. Yeah. Is yeah. that, is there, is this similar or is a shofar not nearly so important of a, of a, of well, a it, it's kind of a big deal. Um, so the shofar, and if there are Jewish folks listening to this and I get this wrong, my deepest and serious apologies, but the shofar is basically when you, in the English scriptures, you have um, the translation sort of trumpets in the old Testament. Yeah, it's yeah. a shofar, right? Um, and basically the shofar is, I mean, it was used in battle, but primarily it was used to call people to worship the living God. Right. Right. Um, and it was used to call people to worship um, and and at a, other certain sort of ceremonial um, rituals as well. Um, so someone basically using this sort of sacred instrument for these purposes is um, no, I will leave you to draw your own conclusions. OK. Yeah. OK. So speaking of religion, um, this was a um, an ecumenical gathering, a Catholic oh, priest um, who was also a semi sort of famous exorcist within the Catholic world, um, prayed that God would deliver America. Semi famous exorcist. I mean, I mean I he's, he's all exorcists should be pretty darn famous. Well, yeah, but, but he's a fairly prominent one who is like known within the Catholic world. So, okay. Anyway, okay. sorry. Um, he prayed that God would deliver America from those who pose Trump, um, okay. and from those who are allied with demonic forces. Okay. Um, Michael Flynn, um, 
who we've talked about on this podcast, yeah. uh, recites the Lord's Prayer. Okay. Um, at one point, he states, without any hint of irony, that the courts don't decide, the people decide. So, okay. Among various other interesting things. Um, yeah. The Catholic Archbishop Carlo Maria Vigano, uh, the former Vatican ambassador to the U.S., who has been a very vehement critic of the current pope, um, so he's on the conservative wing, but he's sort of gone off, I mean, on the deep end of the past, yeah. the past few years. Um, he calls in via a video address and says that um, the fight for Trump is a holy crusade. Um, a pro-Trump organizer um, at some point, don't know the name, said, um, quote, we have to align our spirituality with our politics. Right. Trump's landslide yeah. election is a landslide against evil. Landslide against evil, that's a direct quote. Um, Alex Jones um, is the next figure. So this is, I mean, a very interesting bunch. Um, it's weird that they're all on the same stage together. It's really weird. Um, Alex Jones rants about the satanic pedophile New World Order. That's a quote. Um, the deep state and Mark Zuckerberg, Zuckerberg um, how this is the beginning of the end times, um, proclaimed that Jesus is king and that God is on our side. So. Yeah. Um, also, hat tip to Rod Dreher, who put together this um, fantastic sort of synopsis. Um, that's in, that, yeah. that's of the event. That's what I'm riff, riffing off of here. Yeah, we, um, we should mention, and uh, Dreher is a um, American conservative um, yeah. author, yeah. author of the Benedict Option. Um, certainly not someone who is opposed to conservative causes, not but at all. sees the uh, ridiculousness of these uh, proceedings. Yeah. yeah. I think, you know, one of the things Dreyer expressed in there is he, is he reflected on this event is just something like, what is this doing to the church? Like this is tearing apart. This is going to yeah. tear apart the church in terms of dividing it because you're basically saying like anybody who disagrees with me about this issue is demonic is of the devil. Right. Um, and um, it's, it's at some level, it's an idolatrous behavior. I mean, like to blow, you know, kind of coming back to the shofars, right. I mean, blowing ram horns and acting as if this is, this is, you know, like calling people to worship. And in fact, at one point, I mean, to kind of add to the symbolism, like Trump helicopters overhead, right? And so he's literally, I mean, like they're, they're looking up and cheering at the Trump helicopter, right? Like it's like, it's it's disturbing. Yeah, uh, there's more. And I will yeah. try to quickly. <laughs> um, a, one of the main organizers of Stop the Steal um, called for uh, people to support, quote, to shut this country down if Biden is made president. Um, and he threatens that any GOP member of Congress who doesn't join this movement would be primaried. Um, there was another person who, um, a, you know, a, a black evangelical pastor who then got up, who um, denounced witches and Marxists, also blew a shofar um, and defended um, Trump as being the, the rightful president. Um, another pastor gets up and after his speech asks for personal donations. Um, uh, yet another pastor gets up and compares Trump supporters with Israelites preparing to cross the Red Sea. And that God is going to once again sort of put down Pharaoh's army. Um, he went on to denounce the separation of church and state. Yes, that is denounce the separation of church and state and called for violence and the seizing of government in the name of God. The taxes then uh, voices his approval. Um, the final speech was by a Messianic Jewish pastor um, who is known for a book that he wrote um, in which he claims that the Bible has prophesied um, the Trump presidency um, and he called for resistance. So um, those are the those are the low lines. Yeah. 
I just have one thing to say. <laughs> this is, uh, um, I, you could not have asked for a better example of the confluence of the cult of personality, which surrounds Donald yep. Trump, yep. an overall sentiment in the United States, a rising level of populist sentiment, which facilitates that cult of personality. And I almost think a real sense of political opportunism. And uh, you mentioned it with mm -hmm. the, the mm -hmm. hawking of the my pillows, but most of these people are politically savvy enough, perhaps not Metaxas, who I am genuinely worried about, uh, but, uh, but but some of these others, Michael Flynn, for example, um, Alex Jones, they're in on the joke. Uh, oh, yeah. They know the Trump presidency isn't going anywhere, uh, but they're willing to play along because they know that this is going to generate um, a certain amount of political activity within a base that's going to make them either politically relevant or wealthy and yeah. possibly both. And that's yeah. like I think Andy said it well. This is this is distressing for our political culture. Yeah. There are all kinds of reasons to be opposed to the Biden administration. There are all kinds of reasons to be questioning of some of the policies that yep. they might enact or might uh, or might um, propose to enact. Um, but this whole line of, of opposition is is the worst kind of nonsense. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Yeah, and I mean it's it's weird. I you know I I have nothing but scorn for sort of the leaders of this um, sort of movement. I'm more torn about the rank and file. Um, you know, the rank and file, I mean, they're, you know, the rank, among the rank and file who support this sort of thing, who claim to them, claim themselves to be people of God um, and Christians, right? Yeah. Um, this is, this is idolatry, right? Yeah. Um, and, and that's deeply problematic. On the other hand, I do sympathize with, you know, some of their concerns, um, you know, for the country, um, the decaying morals of the country, um, the policies and, and and positions and approach that many on the left take. And I think those are worthy of concern um, and understand that there's a real fear. Right. Um, yeah. I feel sorry for these people because in many ways um, they've been duped. They're mm -hmm. victims of of sort of the the news, the, the right wing news entertainment sort of complex, which has fed this and monetize this, right? Um, so, so I think you know there, there's blame to be heaped, but there's also, for my part, um, there's some sympathy as well, um, because a lot of these people are being had, um, yeah. and it, it makes me deeply, um, deeply sad and, and angry, um, sort of on their behalf. Yep. Um, we need to wrap up, guys. But let's end with something a little bit more hopeful. <laughs> oh, good. Um, <laughs> we're going to encounter people in our lives that, yeah. uh, who, <laughs> Lord willing, we will encounter people in our lives. People? They're out there somewhere. Who, to one extent or another, are taken with some of these ideas. Yeah. Uh, I have well-educated, thoughtful people in my life who are convinced that the statistical anomalies and discrepancies within the 2020 voting process um, are mean that Biden couldn't possibly have won the election, that there was right. clear malfeasance here. Yep. Now, I would argue that they don't understand statistics, but I'm going to, well, I'll leave that for a personal conversation with them. But we are going to engage people. How do we talk to them? 
how do we what what can we do people uh, uh, within this podcast we're not all the same political mind we're not all the same level of partisanship or the same orient partisan orientations how do we detoxify and detribalize american politics what can we personally do especially over the holidays when we begin to talk to our families and our friends about some of these things yeah so maybe i'll just offer i can kind of lead off with a couple of thoughts i mean one is you know i i was just um preaching at church a couple of weeks ago for the first first Sunday of Advent. And, you know, one of the things I, I remarked on in there is we're reflecting on this passage from Isaiah where he's thinking about, you know, the sin of God's people and the need to their need to repent and the fact that God is our loving father and that he, you know, he he wants um, to bring us back, right, um, into this right relationship. And, you know, one thing that just struck me going through there is, um, you know, how do we how do we conduct ourselves with people around us? So I was thinking about applications, right, where we treat people with kindness and not scorn. And I think it is really easy to scorn people. Like, that's just foolish. It's ridiculous. And, and it often is. I mean, like, that's not objectively wrong for the reasons we've just spent a lot of time talking about, right? But but people do genuinely believe it, right? And and so, how do you how do you treat people with kindness, not scorn? How do you um, how do you listen to where they're coming from and listen to their their real concerns and affirm those concerns, um, the legitimate concerns? And I think there are really legitimate concerns. Whether you're talking to people on the left or on the right, um, they have real concerns that mm -hmm. are are not wrong, right? About um, where our society is and what we've you know what the last few years mean. Um, those are often inter twined with a bunch of ridiculous things, right? And so how do you how do you listen to that? How do you affirm the good? Um, <laughs> and then gently, I think, find ways to gently question the the um the less legitimate things, right? And I think, you know, I think I just finished going through the Gospel of Mark in a seminary class. And, you know, I just was struck again by how Jesus asks questions, right? He doesn't always just sort of tell people how to, things are going to be. I mean, he does at certain moments. And he's if anyone was allowed to do that, it was Jesus, right? But, but at the same time, he often chooses to respond with a question. Let me question your where you're coming from on this. Let me question your assumptions. And not in a mean way, but it's just to say, like, you need to be able to answer this. And if you can't answer this, well, where can we really go with this conversation anyway, right? So I think thinking about what are wise, gentle questions we can ask. Um, none of those are magic bullets that are gonna solve all the your your family relations or or fix our society. But I think like that's where I'm trying to think about starting. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I think, you know, you know, the people who are really worried and really concerned, like, you know, you're not gonna get anywhere by trying to have an argument to score points or to try to sort of reason reason with them like you first need to meet people sort of where where they are at in their emotions and their intuitions they might say like i am worried or something feels wrong about x y or z and chances are there's some elements of truth there right and mm -hmm. so you need to tease those out address sort of where people are coming down what we see is not merely just some sort of breakdown of reason or logic but we're seeing a breakdown of people's sort of emotions right their psyches and a breakdown of people's communities. And that's been exacerbated by COVID and we're sort of disconnected. Yeah. This gets to points, you know, the point that Andy's been making all year, right? I think for Christians, there's another element. Mm -hmm. um, I think as Christians, um, you know, you know, especially if you're a theological, moral, social, conservative Christian, right, in any way, I think Christians need to realize that we are going to be increasingly marginalized in society. Mm -hmm. We've seen this already, the trend will continue especially as you know, the younger age groups are decreasingly religious and show no signs of becoming more religious as you grow older. So there's loads of social science research on this. And what does this mean? This means that the political power of this group of Christians is going to decrease, 
right? Yes. And what does this mean? This means that we're simply reverting back to what is in fact normal in world history. Christians are marginalized and in many places they are persecuted. I'm not forecasting that we're going to have serious Christian persecution here in the United States, but we will be increasingly marginalized. And you know what? Jesus said, expect that, right? right. That is normal. Right. I promise that you will be marginalized if you claim my name, right? Yeah. And so this means that we, we can't put our hope in politics and political means. We can't place our trust in princes or presidents or elections, right? Um, you know, Paul says that the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. Um, and I might add, they're not political either, <laughs> right? Um, so yeah, as Christians, you know, there's some sense in which Christians should be fighters, right? We should be fighters, but, but we're not fighters against the devils that occupy the secular left. That's not what we're supposed to fight. What are we supposed to fight? We're supposed to fight the evil and the idolatry and the injustice wherever it exists, beginning with our own hearts yeah. in our own communities, right? In, in the church, that's where we need to start. And then when we engage sort of in the broader world, what are we called to do? Not be fighters, but peacemakers, right? Yeah. Blessed are the peacemakers because they will be called son for they will be called sons of God, right? And so in short, Christians need we need to get our, our lives, our homes, our churches in order. And we need to actually start thinking and speaking and living as the people of God. And this means living in a way that's pretty radically different from the world. Um, and so, you know, and, and the world operates on fear and hate and ideological purity tests and pride and envy and craven self-service. Um, and we need to reject those things and, yep. and put on, put on these fruits of the spirit. And, and I think that's what, that's what we're going to have to do as Christians. If we, if we really want to bring, you know, true flourishing and freedom to our culture, which is worth doing by the way, into our politics. But we have to, we have to get back to the basics of what we are called to do. And I think sort of the church in America has, has given up its calling in, in many ways. Yeah. I'm into that. That's my advice. So. Well, I think that's probably something that Dreher would be applauding too. If I can, if I'm, if you're channeling him a little bit there too. Oh, gentlemen, thank you. I got to go. Um, this is uh, um, this is a nice way to end, uh, which is I think perhaps our last uh, podcast before Christmas. So if we're not in touch with you on this podcast, thanks for listening to us this year. It's been quite a 2020. Uh, we'll be back in your feed in 2021 um, with uh, uh, further insights and analysis, and probably still the 2020 election. Um, oh yes, thanks for listening to us. We appreciate you, um, and we hope your holidays um, are are blessed. You've been listening to us on Election Shock Therapy. Please email us. Um, send us a Christmas card at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Um, and, uh, and please subscribe to our channel. There's a lot of great stuff on Channel 3900. And um, uh, check it out. Thanks for listening. Merry Christmas. And go Royals. Go Royals.